Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your graduate student co-host, Brandon Saxton. And your associate professor co-host, Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm happy that we were able to get some time to talk about an issue that I feel is very important, which is suicide prevention. And it's, it's Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, and so... Now's a good time for us to talk about some of the main points that people might be interested in knowing so that they can do their part in helping prevent suicide. Yeah, absolutely. We kind of have a rotating set of topics, and this is where we landed for tonight. Um, of course, very relevant with the month, um, very relevant in terms of a topic that you and I both um, have some special knowledge in and some past research experience, and certainly something that's relevant and important just from a public health kind of perspective, because there's a lot of great people doing a lot of great work to help understand why suicide happens and what can we do to prevent it. But there's still a lot of work left to be done in this area. So this is just our small way and uh, vehicle that is this podcast to try to contribute to that by just talking a little bit about suicide and offering some of the information that we have. That's right. And we've talked about it in, in previous episodes, but we there's still some things that, I mean, you could have a whole continuing podcast just specifically about suicide prevention. And so, you know, our previous episodes, we talked about the movie Logan, and mm-hmm. he has some suicidal ideation mm-hmm. in that, and we talked about it there, and we can link to that. And mm-hmm. it's also come up from time to time in, in Well, various when we talked about Mm -hmm. the show Crazy Mm Ex-Girlfriend, she had a suicide Mm -hmm. attempt. And so we can link to some of those Mm -hmm. previous shows. But today we're going to do an overview of that that's going to talk first about how we got into the area of Mm -hmm. studying suicide prevention. Kind of an overview of some of the factors that are thought to cause suicide. We're going to talk about non-suicidal self-injury, which is often is is viewed as distinct from suicidal behavior but it's related in some ways Mm -hmm. and that when people intentionally harm themselves even if the intent isn't for suicide they're often that's correlated with a high risk for suicide Mm -hmm. and then we're going to conclude with some tips about how to help people if you think that they have suicidal ideation or might be at suicide risk which is a great question that was sent into us by our friend murray yeah a friend of our podcast who made the exquisite art from the Rick Essential podcast, and uh, who has just really become a friend of, of mine just uh, through this podcast, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. I have to point out, if I can backtrack really quickly, sure. thinking about previous content that we've covered about suicide, there's a pretty specific and uh, a large piece of content that we covered, which is the show 13 Reasons Why that oh, I yes. kind of forgot all about. So that was a four-part episode where we covered the show that depicted a suicide attempt, uh, as I'm remembering, as well as some of these, this individual's kind of, uh, well, they, there's some 
behavior that came after or before the suicide attempt involving some tapes and other people. It's a very dramatic storyline yeah. that, that I took a lot of issue with and actually never got around to watching the second season despite us recording an episode about it. So, yeah. And I watched a few episodes, yeah. but uh, yeah, we'll link to that too. Yeah. And right, there's a suicide attempt and a death by suicide, which is the main premise of yeah. the show. Yes, so, yeah, that's right, yeah. A lot of a lot of discussion with that and also rick and morty we talked about Mm -hmm. his rick's suicide attempt so i guess we have covered a lot but and and we were on uh sbsm oh um, yes suicide prevention social media talking so now as you've heard us live recall all the times that we talked about suicide prevention it's so important that we're talking about it again specifically oh yeah that's just how important it is Mm -hmm. and it also really illuminates the lack of crystalline kind of memory that Katie and I have regarding the over 100 podcast episodes we've recorded. It's a busy time. It's a busy time and and busy brains. It's true. (laughs) It's true. So how are you doing? I launched into that whole thing after you asked how I was. Oh yeah. Well, I'm doing well. Um, Folks who, I mean, I think everyone knows I'm on internship now, which is the kind of uh, final year um, for a training in clinical psychology. It's a full year of clinical work. So it's been an adjustment, um, but a really good experience. And it's been really uh, a different experience from from my life in graduate school, but going well. Um, I will say the hardest part for me so far has been adjusting to being somewhere at eight in the morning, not something that my body and mind really do naturally. Um, So it's been different, but good. Yeah, I certainly, as you know, can relate to that. I'm, I'm much more of a night person. Yes. So it's, you know, I I kind of was amazed at the end of internship year thinking that I got there every morning, mm-hmm. well, almost every morning mm-hmm. <laughs> on time. So it's, it's, it, it is hard when you're not a morning person. It is. Um, in other news, I recently watched the Netflix series Disenchantment, um, which is kind of this new fantasy series made by the same folks who were involved in like Simpsons and Futurama and it's a lot of fun uh it's a I think it got mostly good reviews but I was a pretty big fan of it I think it's a really funny um fantasy show that actually uh was consistently good and quite funny for like most of the episodes but then like the last three episodes really pulled me in and hooked me into the story um, and left me with wanting more at the end of the series. So well done to them. So I recommend the show. Yeah, so that that might be something that we talk about yeah, in I think a future some, podcast. I think there's some Jedi Council content on there for sure. Oh, that's great. I'll have to check it out. The other big thing, so is in nerd news, was that on the cover of Entertainment Weekly, we got to see Captain Marvel. Yeah, which very was really cool. cool. Yeah, who was summoned in the post credit scene of Avengers Infinity War. Um, which is out on DVD and Blu-ray now at your local retail store. <laughs> a little kickback from Marvel. And Black Panther's streaming there. on Netflix now. It is. Yeah. Well, that's I didn't double verify well, it. Well, I have to go on now. The street. So <laughs> have to start episode. streaming it. I will say that um, I related to this Marvel film since that's what we're doing now. I did watch. I do like that. I'm watching Katie with her. Netflix right now and it auto defaults to Netflix for kids and I think that's kind of fun. <laughs> it just uh, really guides me to the main content for this show. Um, I did watch Thor Ragnarok like twenty times once that came onto Netflix and I oh my gosh it is there, and I also recently bought an awesome uh, Mjolnir uh, keychain for my keys which is far too heavy than any keychain. I'm just impressed that you can say that word because I don't think I can. Well, I recently downloaded the Audible book app. Well, it's not a 
a book app rather just an app but it gives you a free <laughs> it's app. an app that <laughs> yeah. gives you books it read does too, yeah right? and as an amazon prime member i get some freebies but they also just give you one freebie when you download it um i haven't used that freebie yet if anyone has a suggestion please send it but what i'm tempted is to get um the Norse mythology book by Neil Gaiman, who narrates it himself, then I can really hear how the word Mjolnir is pronounced. <laughs> that sounds yeah. right to me. Anyways, back to the content at hand. Suicide and, uh, and suicide prevention. Katie, you've been studying it longer than I have. How did you get into the area of suicide as a research topic? Well, the, the first part is there were a couple incidents in high school that had a strong impact on me. One of them was the death of Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of Nirvana. I was really into grunge music and that, and I liked Nirvana a lot. And the fact that someone who was, you know, by a lot of measures successful, had a wife, had a young child, could be suffering and in that much emotional pain and and feel that bad about himself when so many people were adoring him and really praising him. I think that that was just, that was very sad to me, but it also was hard for me to understand. So it, it got me interested in thinking about how someone might get to that point. And then in addition to that, there are also two people who died by suicide in my high school. One of them I knew through the wrestling team. He had graduated before me, but he had come back and kind of was helping coach. And he was 19 years old when he died by suicide. And he was someone that a lot of people said they didn't see signs, you know, uh, well-liked, talented. He had been through some really hard things. He'd actually been hit by a drunk driver and told that he wasn't going to walk again. And he was able through physical therapy to get back to the place where he was wrestling. And so he had overcome these hardships and yet at age 19 died by suicide. And so seeing, being at the funeral services and at the wake and seeing how his family was affected and his friends. And I had, um, I had some relationship with him too, as, as him being kind of like an assistant coach basically. And so I was very sad about that. And also just seeing the people wondering why, why, mm -hmm. why that was happening and how it led to that and how could they miss that and thinking about all of the things that he could have done up to this point, you know, I mean, it's so that, that really, I think planted some of the seeds for understanding that this is something that anyone can be vulnerable to. It's not always obvious and it causes a lot of pain for the person who's suffering and feeling suicidal but also for the people, their loved ones and friends who are left behind. And society loses out too. We lose these people and, and their value and the mm -hmm. contributions they would have made. So then when I went to college, I was interested in, very interested in studying mental health. And I got into Dr. Thomas Joyner's lab when I was an undergrad. And, and I actually mostly worked on eating disorders. He did eating disorders and mood disorders and stuff related to that. But then when I got into graduate school and started learning more about the existing literature on depression and eating disorders, I learned that there were relatively even fewer people studying suicidal behavior. And 
pairing Dr. Joyner kind of highlight that there's this high need for this. It's hard, very hard to study, which is probably part of the interference. There's still a lot of stigma associated with suicide. I think that combined with my experiences that were kind of um, in my mind at the time just led me to feel really passionately about trying to prevent these tragic deaths and the pain that people are feeling from it. And so from there, Joyner is just a huge influence on me. I admire him a lot. He was a wonderful mentor. And that continues to really drive my work. I think that it's, it's just such a high need. I also like the fact that the community, I think, that connects through suicide prevention does a, a good job of connecting with people and there's overlap too. There are people who have had suicidal ideation and who are also scientists studying mm -hmm. it. And there are people who are, um, have, are bereaved and lost someone to suicide. And so having those connections pretty clear in the community has also been something that has made it really meaningful. So that's kind of how I got into this work. And how about you? Um, well, when I started graduate school, I, well, even, I guess, prior to graduate school, was really interested in emotions, and I've probably talked about this before, and, and I, I still am actually really fascinated by emotions, and I think one of my kind of favorite things that I like to think about with emotions is we're not that good at really defining them or understanding them still. We've been studying them for a long time, um, even within kind of the emotion theorists don't really agree on exactly how do we define or or operationalize emotions. So I kind of got interested in that right away, and, and I still think that was important in thinking about, you know, if we're experiencing sadness or if we're experiencing fear, how does this change the things that we're paying attention to and how we pay attention to things, maybe how we remember things. And I thought that was good and important, but fairly basic research. And what I mean by basic is not to say it's simple, but if we think about research in terms of basic and applied, um, basic things tend to be more how can we understand this kind of process and how it works and apply it is more how can we apply the kind of basic research in a more, well, I don't know, applied way. Uh, that was a bad definition, but it's after nine, so forgive me. Um, so I, when I moved through graduate school, um, I enjoyed the work with emotion and, and cognition, but I wanted to start doing something that could be a little more applied in a clinical sense. And I gave a seminar that was kind of open to the public. I co-facilitated this on campus at, at North Dakota State University. That was all about how can people with no clinical training really recognize individuals who might be at risk for suicide among their friends or families, and what were some of the actions that they could engage in if they were concerned about someone that they cared about. And that got me really thinking about, about suicide prevention, as well as just kind of examining the relative amount of research attention that it got even in that time, which came a little while after you made that same realization in your own journey. And, and I just got thinking with all these kind of factors that came together of me wanting to have something a little more clinically relevant and developing this kind of interest in suicide and thinking about the time and resources that I had as a graduate student and, and at the time I was maybe thinking as a someday as a, a researcher, um, well, how could I make some kind of impact in this area? And that's where I got interested in really in specifically a very specific suicide theory, which is the one by Dr. Joyner, who was your advisor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got there. So um, pretty 
I mean, less extensive research background for sure, but, well, I think I... Well, I'm older than you, uh, so that's, that's, that's why sure. that story was so much longer. Um, I, it, I also talk more than you. But. <laughs> I, this is an aside, but it is kind of... I just cleaned out my office on campus about a month or a month and a half ago. And um, in, at NDSU, when you move to doctoral candidacy, what we have to do is write an area paper, which is a, a very, very comprehensive literature review that kind of consists of an analysis of the whole kind of area in which you want to develop some expertise and what you think you can contribute to that area. And I, my area paper was on perceived burdensomeness, which is one factor in the interpersonal theory of suicide, Dr. Joyner's theory. And so kind of getting to the point, while I was cleaning out my office, I had a stack of note cards and each note card was one article that I read and included in my area paper. And I had like 103 note cards and I kind of wanted to keep them. I didn't because what would I do with 103 note cards? I stole <laughs> my comprehensive <laughs> exam yeah. note cards in my office. It's, I haven't looked at them since, yeah, but I still have them. It's, they're very symbolic, aren't they? So anyway, um, that's where my kind of real deep dive into the literature began was with my area paper and then with my dissertation, which is in progress right now. The data is collected, um, so now it's on to kind of digging in and finding um, what can we learn from the data. Yeah. Okay, well, so that's how we got into suicide prevention. That was, believe it or not, the short version of my story, <laughs> but so that we can make sure to get into some other things. One thing that we wanted to talk about are the causes of suicide. And so in psychology, a model that we often use and that many other people use, it's not just us, is the biopsychosocial model. And it's called that because it reflects the fact that there are biological factors, psychological factors, and sociocultural factors that interact, influence, and are thought to lead to mental health problems including suicide. Um, and the I think the back in the day, whenever that day was, often people talk about things like nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. Which one do you think it is? Well, it's both. Mm -hmm. And it also depends on what you're talking about, mm -hmm. whether it's more nature or biology versus nurture. And these are very interesting things that behavior genetics studies, for example, mm -hmm. look at. But the bottom line is it's, it's not a simple thing. And I think that it's hard, it's harder to talk about things caused by complex and multiple factors. Mm -hmm. But suicide is one of those things that it's, I think that it's human nature to want to pinpoint and say this was the thing yeah. that led to that. Absolutely. But the truth is there are a lot of different factors and that's part of what makes it hard. So one of, when we talk about suicide prevention, something that has been helpful is the idea that there are a lot of these factors and we can say that they're related, but what are the most related and what can we, and what are the ones that we can change and what are the ones that actually are the things that would stop suicide from happening. And so, for example, some of the biological aspects of the biopsychosocial model refer to things like genetics, family history, and there is some evidence that suicide tends to run in families. Uh, hormonal factors, brain functioning factors. And so the idea is that there can be people who have some of those factors that might make them more vulnerable to suicidal behavior, but that's not what's considered 
sufficient to cause suicidal behavior. And so the idea is that there are also psychological aspects and psychological aspects that we think of are typically thoughts. So with suicide, people thinking that they're a burden is a common thought. And there's there are a lot of different experiences, which mm-hmm. is part of why it makes anything in psychology hard to study oh, is yeah. because of individual differences. It makes it really interesting, but also tricky. So we're often looking to see what are the commonalities, but it still varies mm-hmm. in between people. So thoughts about being a burden or feeling alone, hopeless. These things have been connected to suicide, but other things such as emotion and uh, other things that, that have happened in a person's life to reinforce certain things. There's some research suggesting that people daydream about suicide as a way to think of escaping their emotional pain, mm-hmm. for example. And in that way, thinking about suicide might act as a negative reinforcer in that it reduces their negative feelings because they're imagining escaping. And while uh, I think those reinforcement properties are sometimes not well examined because mm-hmm. when we think about suicide or drug use or something, sometimes the idea is to just jump to saying that's bad or don't mm-hmm. do it or don't use it. But if you ignore those reinforcing properties, then you don't really understand what's keeping the person doing this and also yeah. how it might change that. And then the sociocultural has to do with things like environmental stressors. So, for example, there's a link of socioeconomic status. There's evidence that people who are lower socioeconomic status tend to have less money and less education, that uh, those tend to be linked to a higher risk for suicide. There are also differences that we might see in terms of cultural expectations that affect suicidal behavior and suicide rates. So the idea is that these factors can occur together. It's going to depend on the individual and that they, there's feedback through mm-hmm. all of these sources and they affect each other. And so suicide researchers, like I was saying before, try to say what are the big commonalities mm-hmm. so that we can try to design an effective intervention and what are the, the parts that we can actually change right so at this point it's not the genetics wouldn't you know be something that it might be something we screen for Mm -hmm. at some point though we're not there yet but um you know and so there's been a lot of focus on the psychological part but i there seems to be i think because when you look at statistics and see a lot of people die by suicide have not presented for therapy or told Mm -hmm. their their physician that they're having problems there seems to also be movement in the sociocultural realm. Well, mm-hmm. how can we reduce those environmental factors that increase risk? So that's the biopsychosocial model. Did I miss anything? No, I thought that was very comprehensive. Uh, and I just taught it in class last oh, week, so I, it was I fresh tell. in my yes, mind. That seemed very well done. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's so important to kind of talk about that because I know that sometimes when I'm talking to other professionals maybe in other areas or maybe people from outside of psychology from any background i sometimes wonder if the perception of psychology is that it really only hones in on a really specific kind of uh the psychological factor so i think it's important to kind of make sure that that we're as um, clinicians or researchers really taking a look at this whole picture through the biopsychosocial model and, um, and hopefully that's helpful for kind of people outside of the field to understand as well, who maybe just perceive or kind of see, and sometimes rightfully so, the more of the psychological focus. Yeah, and, you know, as we said, a lot of these 
the sociocultural and biology, they can manifest and impact psychology. But you can think about, for example, if someone's in a really unsafe environment and they have reason to feel hopeless, that they're, you know, changing that environment may be the most powerful mm -hmm. intervention rather than trying to have them view it differently, right. depending on what's going on with Absolutely. them. So usually it's kind of getting a combination and, and trying to understand this at multiple levels and understand for that individual what it is. Mm -hmm. But I think that sometimes in fictional depictions, for example, there might be um, a focus on, well, this relationship ended or they lost their mm -hmm. job. And those are risk factors for suicide. But there are other pieces to that too, because yeah. that's not that everyone who goes through that experience doesn't have that happen. Mm -hmm. So that's why it is complex to study, but hopefully we can be most helpful by looking at all these different components. Absolutely. Okay, so that's a biopsychosocial model. Brandon mentioned the interpersonal theory of suicide, which Joyner developed. Do you want to mention? Yeah, an overview we, of that? we've talked about it on the show more than once and in pretty detailed level for the Logan episode. So so see that for a more in-depth discussion of kind of the interpersonal theory of suicide, but kind of the elevator speech version is that it is a theory of suicide that hopes to predict who is at the greatest risk for dying by suicide. And it kind of consists of three main factors. The first two factors are related for, or related to rather, excuse me, desire for suicide. And they consist of perceived burdensomeness, which I mentioned is the main focus of my area paper and dissertation work, which is kind of this experience that people sometimes have, wherein they feel like they're contributing so little to the people around them or society around them that maybe the people around them will be better off if they were gone or dead. And they really experience some self-loathing as a result or in conjunction to that kind of perception of burdensomeness. Um, the other one is thwarted belongingness, which is kind of related to having some unmet social connectedness um, where people really don't feel like they have those needs met. They aren't connecting or belonging to any group or, or anything like that. And those are the two, like I kind of mentioned, that are related for desire for suicide. And then the third factor is related to acquired capability to die by suicide, which is associated with fearlessness about death. That kind of has a genetic component and might be related to engaging in risky or dangerous behaviors that kind of reduce that fearlessness that most of us have inherently related to death or harm just as kind of our, um, you know, in inherent or or just human-based will to live, which is pretty universal. Yeah. And yeah, and so that that model, the idea was to advance understanding of suicide by identifying if you had to pick three factors mm -hmm. that every suicide had as a commonality, and that was the proposal. And that theory, mm -hmm. his book came out in 2005, and then there was a psychological review paper in 2010, and there have been a lot of tests since that, yeah. some that support the theory and others that don't and have mm -hmm. refined some mm -hmm. some versions of it. We can link to some of this. They did a meta-analysis on it, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah, absolutely. So, like you said, we covered it in, in very great detail in our Logan episode, which was like 60 episodes ago now, maybe, or something. So check that out for a further discussion um, related to the character Logan. Definitely. And then... As another example of kind of this idea of narrowing in more, I wanted to mention a model that another model of suicidal behavior, what we know about 
suicide is that if we look at the percentage of people who think about suicide at any given point, that's much larger than people who ever mm-hmm. attempt suicide. And so there's also a paper that I'll link to by David Klonsky and Alexis May, and this came out in 2015, and it's the three-step theory. And the goal of this theory is really to talk about, among the people who are thinking about suicide, who are likely to go from ideation or thoughts about suicide into an action where they're going to attempt. And if we know this, it can help us get better about screening for who's at highest risk and who needs intervention versus who doesn't. Because in all of these cases, if someone's thinking about suicide, the immediate response isn't we'll put them in the hospital or something Mm -hmm. because it really has to rise to a certain level. It might not even be that if there's an action, but your intervention is going to be tailored on your best guess at suicide Mm -hmm. risk, which we need more improvement in that too. But these types of directions like Klonsky and May have done, I think, are helpful in understanding who's at highest risk. And then Michael Nestis has also done some work with uh, Joy Nestis looking at things like access to means. So having access to firearms or having access to pills, and does that increase risk for death by suicide? They've presented some, some evidence for that, which we'll link to as well. And so that's kind of the overview of, of the of directions of research in suicide that are looking both at why do people feel that way in the first place and how can we intervene. There is a book that Joyner did along with Kim Van Orden and Tracy Witte that's specifically looking at how to use that model, the interpersonal theory, to intervene. And we've got a lot more work to do. Yeah. And I we got to do better. And I think mm-hmm. that, but I have even in the short, relatively short time that I've been in the field, I'm excited to see some of the direction that this are going, that these are going in and identifying and trying to get better at this. And I, and I, I'm hopeful, even though, I mean, it's urgent to help. I mean, it's so painful for people who experience this mm-hmm. and people who lose people, but there are some great people in the field working on the problem. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you. So, that is the overview of the research. I thought maybe we'd just mention uh, non-suicidal self-injury a little mm-hmm. bit, like I said at the beginning. Non-suicidal self-injury is the deliberate self-inflicted destruction of body tissue without any intent to die and purposes that are not socially sanctioned. So that means if you're getting piercings or tattoos mm-hmm. or something else that is culturally sanctioned, it wouldn't be considered non-suicidal self-injury. So you'll notice we talked about how there's not typically suicidal intent, otherwise it would be considered something else, but it it is associated with an increased risk for suicide. Why do people engage in non-suicidal self-injury? Well, we can kind of break it down into a couple of different factors, but really I think the easiest way to think about it is to go back to reinforcement. Um, So if we think back to our behavior modification episode that we did, and I have no sense as to how long that may or may not have been. But uh, if we think about reinforcement, again, I think folks are generally familiar with it. Positive reinforcement is when you're adding something. And think of positive just as like the mathematical term, positive adding something that's going to make the behavior more likely to happen again. 
adding something positive, specifically a reinforcer, and negative reinforcement is when you're removing something negative to make the behavior more likely to happen again. So if we think about interpersonal factors, um, a form of negative reinforcement um, for non-suicidal self-injury might be getting out of a situation, whereas a, a form of positive reinforcement might be getting a response from someone else. So for the first example, a situation that they don't want to be in, that's negative. So by engaging in that, the situation has been removed. Uh, the negative thing has been removed, so the behavior is more likely to happen. Just like the opposite with positive reinforcement, the response is a reinforcer. Um, so because that is something that was sought after or seen as a positive, which I shouldn't use the word positive um, because I think it confuses people, but it makes the behavior more likely to happen again. If we look at intrapersonal factors, so these are more in, uh, internal kind of things, um, the negative reinforcement, Katie already kind of alluded to this, might be stopping some of the bad feelings when you're kind of referencing daydreaming about suicide as an escape from pain. Um, that can be similar for non-suicidal self-injury. Um, but then kind of similarly, or on the flip side of that, sometimes it can be positively reinforcing because the individual feels something, even if it is pain, because sometimes individuals who are in kind of this state of mind where they might be experiencing suicidal ideation or engaging in non-suicidal uh, self-injury might report feeling numb. So the experience of feeling anything at all can be reinforcing for those individuals. Yeah, exactly. And, and the way that this the model, this reinforcement model came about, the functional model of non-suicidal self-injury with uh, Matthew Nock and Mitch Prinstein was by asking people who engage in non-suicidal self-injury, why do you do it? Mm -hmm. And they looked at the responses and the most common response is like what Brandon was saying was to stop bad feelings mm -hmm. that they, I think sometimes there's a misconception that people are doing this for attention mm -hmm. or for some other reason, but for most people they're doing this, hiding it secretly and doing this because they experience some relief, mm -hmm. some emotional relief. And that, again, is important to pay attention to and understand if we're going to be able to help people rather than just saying, you know, don't do that or something yeah, like that. absolutely. Yeah, so, and, and the reason that people think, some of the reasons people think this is connected to higher suicide risk are, one, because there could be similar mental health struggles that are underlying someone um, engaging in non-suicidal self-injury as as experiencing suicidal desire. So that could be, there could be like a common factor underneath that. And then at, back to what Brennan was saying about Joyner's theory about people who die by suicide have a lowered fear about, about death, that part of it might be if someone is intentionally injuring themselves they might be experiencing habituation to some of the mm -hmm. pain and other things that are related to suicide and so that's why that's another important thing to screen for and ask, mm -hmm. ask about and another phenomenon that we don't know a ton about mm -hmm. it's relative but uh, relatively new to be researched but a lot of people interested in trying to understand why someone in emotional pain would physically hurt themselves mm -hmm. and what what they how that would make them feel better and also what alternatives can we talk about that might help them to change their emotions in a way that doesn't also hurt them so i we talked about broadly a lot of the the risk factors for suicide and there are a lot of different correlates in that, yeah. that have been identified i i think 
maybe we it might be useful to talk about some of the protective factors. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so, of course, protective factors are some of the things that seem to decrease the likelihood or risk that people might um, attempt suicide. Um, I That was probably obvious, but just to make sure folks oh, are yeah, on the yeah. same page. I don't so. like it jargony. No, and I don't. I think we rarely are. I, I think if, Try we, not if we deserve a pat on the back or anything, it's probably jargoniness. But maybe I'm wrong <laughs> on that. So if I am, you just let, let us, us know. Let us know if we're too jargony. Um, so uh, family and school connectedness is one thing. So that's kind of related to that thwarted belongingness component that I talked about. So individuals who have that connectedness from the family, they're experiencing that support. Uh, they have those relationships, the same to be said at school. Individuals who have that social support at school, they've got friends, they've got people who they can feel like they can lean on, people who they feel like they can talk to. Um, that tends to be a protective factor. Uh, reduced access to firearms. So um, Katie mentioned, uh, mentioned, I'm combining words a little bit here, mentioned Michael Anestis uh, earlier. He just put out a book recently related to access to firearms and how that's related to um, risk for suicide. So, uh, really, I haven't read it, but it seems like a great book, and I hope to read it when I get a little bit more time. But um, there is research showing that reducing access to firearms is a protective factor for uh, suicide risk. Um, safe schools is another one. Uh, academic achievement, um, sort of related to school, uh, folks who are doing well in their courses. And then, probably, maybe a little bit unsurprising, but worth mentioning is good self esteem. So, individuals who are feeling good about themselves uh, feel like things are going okay in their life they're connecting with folks um, and just overall maybe have a more more are engaging in more positive experiences or having experiencing more positive affect exactly and the safe schools is kind of something that comes up as linked to suicide is people who are bullied being at higher yeah. risk and most people who are targeted in bullying situations are do not attempt suicide, yeah. but it is a risk factor. And groups that have higher rates of being bullied, for example, sexual and gender minority students, mm -hmm. and some areas ethnic minority students, that higher that elevated being targeted. And you can imagine, you know, especially as an adolescent or a kid, if you're being targeted, told you're worthless, or made fun of, you might think that that's how it's going to be, yeah. and you might think believe those things about yourself mm -hmm. and it just that stuff i mean it's it's all very sad but those when mm -hmm. the, you see in the news sometimes kids or teens who were bullied and i think it, it just breaks everyone's heart i mean it's yeah. always tragic and sad but to think of a, a child being treated that way it's just mm -hmm. so so when schools are rel are relatively safe places where people can be where they're not being intimidated, physically targeted, and those are all, and those types of things, that can improve the situation and reduce some of the risk. So looking at, uh, there are some treatments for suicidal behavior, and Jonathan Singer, who does a social work podcast, yeah. has done is great about tweeting out information oh, yeah. about those types of things. And so I'll link to him too. And maybe we can briefly say a lot of them try to target the thoughts and behaviors that yes. we're talking about. Dialectical behavior therapy, which we've talked about before, is something that focuses on, it's best known for being used to treat borderline personality disorder, including targeting non-suicidal self-injury and mm -hmm. suicidal behavior. And it teaches skills for managing painful emotions because a lot of people who 
feel suicidal will say, you know, they, it's not that they want to die. They want to escape that pain that they're having, and they don't see other ways to do that. And mm-hmm. so dialectical behavior therapy tries to teach ways to tolerate distress, improve your life, mm-hmm. make your life worth living, as we've yeah, talked about before. that's sort of the... Uh, um, there's no catchphrase for dialectical behavior therapy, but that's the bottom line, really, is, is engaging in behaviors that lead to a life worth living. Yeah, yeah and, and making it so... Not just that you're coming it from a perspective of how do we keep this person from killing themselves. That's really important, mm-hmm. especially in acute crisis situations, Absolutely. because if you can prevent people from during those very high crisis, high risk situations, I mean, that, that can really save their lives, but also making it so that their life is as high quality as it can be and that it is a life worth living, mm-hmm. that it's beyond just uh, something that you're tolerating. Mm-hmm. And everything in this episode is oversimplified for time, but we're going to yeah. link to so many things Yes, that if so you're into this, nuance. yeah, that um, please check it out. Or if you want us to talk more about anything specifically, obviously we're both passionate about yeah. this stuff. So maybe... Brandon, if you don't mind taking Murray's question, that might be yeah. a practical way for suicide prevention awareness. We've talked about how we got into this field, mm-hmm. some directions that it's taken, and kind of a summarize that, and then why and what the risk factors are. But maybe we can just get to the real practical question that, that Murray asked. Yeah, so Murray tweeted to us and said, uh, what is the best approach to reach out to somebody who is withdrawn and you suspect has or may have suicidal ideation? And it's a really uh, it's a really good question and probably something that a lot of people puzzle over and maybe have experienced firsthand. And I think what makes this question and situation so compelling is that it's scary. I, I, th- I mean, just straight up. I think it's probably oh, yeah. really scary for a lot of people mm-hmm. if they think that someone that they care about might be at risk for suicide. Mm-hmm. And you probably don't know what to do. So some things to kind of keep in mind, as I, and I think this is first and foremost, is to be direct. And I hope that this myth is, is thoroughly dispelled, but I'm not sure that it is. Is there is sometimes an idea that if you ask someone are you feeling suicidal? Are you thinking about death? That you can put that idea in their head and create more risk for that individual than there would have been otherwise. And and I just can't stress enough, that's thoroughly debunked. That's a myth. You're not going to put someone at more risk by asking if they're feeling suicidal. And in fact, you might lead to them feeling a little bit better, maybe feeling heard, giving them an opportunity or a platform or a a vehicle through which they can express that they have been feeling that way and maybe had some shame about it because of the stigma that surrounds suicide. So that would be the first thing I would say is be direct with this person. Um, Listen non-judgmentally to them. Um, Obviously, this is going to be someone that you care about, presumably. Um, So make sure that when you're talking with them and, and if they are sharing these things with you that they've been thinking about suicide or things haven't been going so well in their life. Just being very careful that you're listening non-judgmentally to them so they feel like that you are someone who they can continue to confide in and that you are becoming a source of social support for them and someone through which hopefully they can get some resources um, if you can get to the point where you're directing them um, in that way. And I think one thing that gets in the way of that is 
the fear and uncertainty. Uh-huh. And so sometimes someone might try to say, you know, I've been thinking about I, that I don't want to be around anymore mm-hmm. or something like that. And the person might jump to, well, don't do that and things will get better and all this yeah. stuff. And then that the effect that that often has on people is a message that it's not okay to talk about this, yeah. you know? And I, some of the work that people have done, like Desiree Stage, another person I'll link to, and I tweeted about this, she has a, a project called Live Through This where she's interviewed people who've had suicide attempts. And part of it is making reducing that stigma and showing that anyone can be affected by this and we should we would be well served if we could talk more openly about it because it's very hard to prevent treat help someone if they aren't talking about it Mm -hmm. and we don't know about it absolutely um so in addition to kind of being non-judgmental and in your approach with them also be available to them um show some interest so show show support with them um, make yourself available so they know they can reach out and continue to talk with you while they're going through this period of time. Um, like I said, you're, you're developing that social support for them then and helping them feel like they're being heard and there's someone there who cares and is listening. Um, related to that, offering some real hope, like Katie said, um, sometimes it, it's scary or maybe it catches people off guard. So it, it can be easy to say things like, no, no, things are going to get better. Um, but obviously if this these people who might be struggling with this may not believe at that time that things are going to get better. So it's important to the extent that you can um, really try to offer this, offer them some real hope that uh, things will change. Uh, get them, you know, I'm thinking of DBT, a mm-hmm. life worth living. Those kind of things that are things to live for. Um, yeah, things that you might miss mm-hmm. if, if you were to kill yourself. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, to the extent that it's possible, uh, try to take action. If this individual has a plan or has means related to uh, pills or if they have guns, um, see if they're willing to give that stuff to you to the extent that you're comfortable or stay with a friend or, or, or a loved one who can kind of be around them. And Or maybe, I mean, there are services where you can get rid of pills and things like that. There's a lot of options. Um, but to the extent that it's possible, try to take some action to remove those means um, because really, we do know that's going to reduce some of the risk. And then um, making sure that you're getting some help for yourself, too. This can be kind of a, a challenging situation for individuals who are navigating with someone else. So making sure that you don't feel like you have to handle it alone, get some help. And related to that is know when it's time to really reach out to professionals or emergency personnel um, to the extent that that might be needed. Sometimes people who... Uh, are thinking of that they might want to die might ask you please don't tell anyone about this don't tell anyone what's going on and as hard as it might be don't swear to that kind of secrecy um, because it's it's really going to be better to make sure that the person gets the help that they need yeah exactly right and you know asking for help one thing you can do is call 1-800-273-TALK just if you're in the united states and tell them the situation, they might be able to give you some guidance as far as what to do. And one thing that I think is common, and I certainly do this too, is to kind of send out, here are helplines, reach out if you need help. Well, for some people who are feeling suicidal, it can be really hard. They might not think it's worth it. They might Mm -hmm. not think anyone really cares. Mm -hmm. They might not have any hope. So I think something that we can do, since we know that, that a lot of the times... People are not, it's not like they're going to a therapist. I mean, that happens sometimes, but a lot of time it's peers or family members who find out that someone's suicidal is 
to, if you notice changes, ask, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, ultimately it's up to the person what they're going to tell you. But you showing that you care and taking an active stance instead of thinking, you know, well, if they need me, they'll come to me or I'll just give them this phone number. If you notice someone care about is experiencing these things, see if you can reach out to them and if that opens up because it might be hard for them to take the first step mm-hmm. to do that. Absolutely. All right. Okay, so anything else that we should say in our basic overview no, of suicide prevention? I don't think so. I, I think that, I think that is a good primer, but certainly worth reiterating again, which you already did, that it's... Of it's very we oversimplified some things for time and it's really just a, a crash course on to kind of like the briefest overview of how we got into this some of the relevant research and risk factors and protective factors and then what can you do but we'll link to some more resources so you can dig in a little bit more and feel free to reach out too exactly and this the field as i said there are a lot of great people in the field working on this but we have a long way to go, and yeah. historically, suicide's been underfunded in terms of research, and that's a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. Some people have suggested that it has to do with stigma and misconceptions about suicide, and there's there seems to be more attention or more understanding, at least in media or news, that we need to take this very seriously and that there could be ways that we could intervene if we can study this better and communicate more with Mm. people of experiences and really try to understand what factors we can affect to save people's lives, Mm -hmm. which is really what this is all about. Absolutely. All right. So maybe we'll, uh, we'll end there and uh, just say thanks so much everyone for, for listening in and, and um, reach out if you have any questions or comments or concerns and we'll be back again soon with, uh, with some more episodes. And your life is valuable. Please take care of yourself and take care of other people. All right. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.